Recession. Collapsing commodities. Monetary policy has to do the heavy lifting work. Money for nothing. Good morning and welcome back to Friday's edition of Money for Nothing with me, Rinita Malhotra-Hura. The Nasdaq tops record as U.S. stocks shrug off mixed earnings and data. Google's first quarter sales climb as advertising volume increases and China's bond market engine falters as Premier Li tackles a $28 trillion debt. U.S. earnings for the most part have come in better than expected and uh, NASDAQ futures signal a further rally. Joining us for discussion on the markets this morning is the Reorient Group's uh, Steve Wang. Next, we have uh, CFA Institute's Paul Smith on regulations and compliance. And our last guest this morning is PwC's Jenny Yip. She helps us to fulfill a listener-requested segment to decode the complexity of the non-U.S. residence form, the W8 Ben. Tobias Hexter is our regular co-host uh, joining us here at Kowloon Tong Studio this morning. Good morning, Tobias. Good morning, Renita. So uh, U.S. Uh, earnings uh, that look pretty good, especially the tech earnings. Uh, do you think that the markets will just push higher? Yeah, the earnings look good. But if you look at these multiples, companies like Amazon, Netflix, etc., there's also very, very, very big multiples. But at this moment, it's still another day, another record, another record. Fine. Yeah, you have a point there. I mean, you know, we, we talk about multiples a lot um, and sort of use that as a gauge for the strength of a company, how expensive it is to invest in it. But uh, increasingly, it seems that although multiples are skyrocketing, you know, the company is uh, still worth investing in, you know, according to many analysts. What do you think? I think it also relates to alternative measures of investment. Um, Look at multiples of dividend-paying stocks, which are going up and up and up, so that their yield starts reflecting bond rates. So I think this huge blow-up of multiples making things investable, uh, in the end comes from our friends Draghi, Kuroda and Miss Yellen. Okay, well, uh, all right, hold that thought. Uh, uh, we'll, let, let's remember to bring it up with Steve a little later uh, in the show. The NASDAQ composite climbed to the highest level in 15 years, uh, topping its dot-com era high as U.S. stocks shrugged off mixed earnings and disappointing manufacturing data from across the globe. Morgan Stanley's Adam Parker is convinced that this doesn't scream a bubble. The earnings, the cash flows, the cash balances and everything are also at an all-time high, so I would expect them, you know, the market to be up. I think it's it's nowhere near like uh, 1999 or 2000. I think that comparison is uh, uh, not uh, relevant. You've got the big companies were crazy expensive back then. That's that's not the case now. And uh, their their free cash flow, the return of the shareholder. There's a number of things that make the the 2000 comparison irrelevant. I think is so it's overplayed. The, the companies are better than they were then. And Parker is not worried about the strong dollar either. He says that now is a good time to buy equities. Historically, the stock market doesn't really go down in aggregate when the dollar strengthens because the price-to-earnings ratio expands mm. as much as the earnings get hurt. So you just want to play that by avoiding staples, avoiding machinery, avoiding uh, you know, chemicals, avoiding select tech and select healthcare that are most currency exposed, overweight banks, overweight other areas where uh, the currency doesn't really matter as much. 
The Nasdaq climbed four-tenths of a percent to close at 5,056. The S&P 500 also set an intraday high and uh, climbed a quarter of a percent to eventually close at 2,112, briefly passing its March 2nd high. And the Dow Jones rose 20 points or one-tenth of a percent to close at 18,058. The euro rose on speculation that Greece and its creditors will reach a deal to receive aid payments and oil jumped uh, 2.8% to settle at $57.74 in New York. In company earnings, Google's revenue climbed 14% as the number of ads on the company's search properties gained. Amazon recorded, uh, reported uh, first quarter revenue of $22.7 billion, up 15% from last year and ahead of analyst estimates. The company lost $57 million, or $0.12 cents per share in the quarter, also better than the $0.14 cent loss that analysts had expected. Frost Investments Advisors A.B. Mendez now reacts to Amazon's earnings. I think there was a lot of speculation out there about margins on the AWS business uh, after last year. They had to um, kind of match competitive price cuts at Microsoft and Google and roughly cut pricing in half for some of the more popular uh, cloud infrastructure products. Um, some people speculating that, that that business was break even to possibly even losing money. Um, now with this increased disclosure, which we've been you know hoping to see for some time, you see a nice 17% operating margin in, you know, not to be to exaggerate, but not only for Amazon, maybe the mother of all scale businesses where, you know, the Microsoft and Amazons of the world are only going to increase their scale and efficiencies. It makes the story cleaner. When you get a 17% op margin on the AWS business, you see positive margins on the North America retail segment. And then it's kind of very easy to understand that they're investing in uh, building competitive advantage outside the U.S. And coffee retailer Starbucks met quarterly earnings and revenue estimates, reporting its strongest non-holiday quarter in over 20 years of public life. Global comps are a key metric, and they jumped uh, 7% with a 3% tick up in traffic. Comps in its China and Asia-Pacific unit were especially robust, rising 12%. All right, let's bring in our first guest of the morning, the Reorient Group's uh, research director, Steve Wong. Good morning, Steve. So, uh, Steve, you know, earlier um, uh, we were talking, Tobias and I were talking about the investability of these companies with high multiples. And then uh, Morgan, Morgan Stanley's Adam Parker actually says that he's not too concerned about a strong dollar when it comes to these tech companies. Do you agree? Well, my, in my, I actually just, I'll start off your, your answer by talking about my recent trip to Shenzhen Stock Exchange. Mm. Shenzhen Stock Exchange houses one of some of the China's most interesting tech companies, and their valuation is a jaw dropping ninety times backward. I think forward. I checked on Bloomberg <laughs> this morning is at forty five. So when I when we visited the stock exchange, we asked them, you know, what do you think of this number? And obviously, they said, well, I mean, it's a very difficult to explain, but market's one that makes the call on where to price companies. And in effect, you know, a lot of the tech companies who are listed in China today are expected to be consolidated consolidators within their uh, respective sectors. So that's why you know a lot of times that people may actually pay a premium for the companies that are are are, are on there right now. And I think uh, overnight we also saw the CSRC, which is Chinese securities regulator, uh, calling for uh, a greater batch of IPOs to be. 
to be uh, released in the coming months. So mm-hmm. they're, going to, they're going to speed up the process of allowing more companies to be listed in both Shanghai and Shenzhen. So, Steve, how then, you know, to Tobias's point earlier, do we measure the investability? How do we gauge it, you know, with such high multiples? I mean, so many of our analysts just this week and many days have been saying that, you know, tech companies in China is where it's all at. Yeah. I mean, for real, uh, people know that we have been banging on the table to tell people to look at China's new economy. Because when you look at a transformational economy, there's no point looking at earnings trajectory because everything will change. You know, a company could die the next day if something just doesn't do well, or a company could just become, you know, just make some breakthrough invention that totally transform our life. So the only way to really to do it, and I've been thinking about this hard you know, and deep, is to really to do work on yourself and go, go to Shenzhen and take a look what is going on there. Uh, we look at Shanghai authorities' uh, de- latest development. They are very, very aggressive. They essentially want to turn that piece of uh, that three parcels of land they have earmarked to become an ultra high density Manhattan. You know, there there basically will be no cars, but everything linked from the underground to the sky, and you know, people will just be conducting uh, really efficient financial services there. But you know. it isn't the if you look at the, the Shenzhen market, it's interesting because mm-hmm. in a lot of metrics, it's actually f- even more overvalued than if you look at the internet bubble in the US 2000. If you look at the companies, there's companies that are called like uh, water treatment and actually they're in cloud computing. <laughs> so there's a lot of frothiness involved. And uh, how would you see that in terms of uh, being suitable for investment, given that there's no put options, for example, on that Shenzhen index available? That's a very good point, and then I think you you mentioned the right word. Whether we are in a in a state of investment or state of speculation, mm. I think that, you know looking at the, the yeah, performance charts of the stock exchanges indexes uh, in our region for the, for April, they're up massively. They basically you know anything you pick, with exception of gaming. We know what's wrong with that. <laughs> yep. With the exception of Hong Kong utilities and Hong Kong telecom, everything up in Hong Kong is up 20%. You know, it doesn't matter which sector. So, I, I, you know, I was very lucky last time I came here to talk about consumer and airlines. They were up. And China also is up about 20% across the board. And I think this is not necessarily a state of fundamental investment. In fact, you know, March number was one of the worst economic number I've ever seen in my life. Not that I've been doing this for a long time. Because I have one more question in terms of investability. What Mm -hmm. I found really amazing last Friday, there was this little statement about the CRC about possibly increasing um, short selling. And after hours, the A50 futures went down a thousand points. Mm -hmm. And of course, hurriedly, they say that they shouldn't interpret it this way. That, in my opinion, really shows the frothiness of the market. What goes up can come down and quite hard. To me, actually... uh I think that just shows you the the undecisiveness of the regulator in this case. I mean, they are all very, you know, interested to prop up the market in the way that you know they believe sincerely that the market is undervalued for too long, and they want to restore the value back to somewhat of a more neutral or uh, well-priced level. So. But at the same time, they don't want to have that excess speculation going place. That's why you talk about the froth, or you can interpret that as froth, or they just try to put in the measures, the proper measure to, you know, put in some a bit more uh, rationality into the market, you will. So, 
I think from my visit to the Sydney Stock Exchange, I'm not convinced that they really will clamp down this. They don't want to. They don't want the stock market to go down 50 percent. That's damn sure. <laughs> Steve, uh, one of the things that we've seen, uh, you know, certainly this week, is that Premier Lee is allowing corporate defaults. Um, uh, oh. bond bond defaults and discouraging uh, local government uh, off-balance sheet funding. Um, how significant do you think these headwinds are and do you think you know this is going to increase the pace of, of the already, this race to equities? Uh, direct financing basically is what you're referring to. I think the government and the economy needs more... Uh, direct financing, i.e. borrowing more money, not through the banks, not through the shadow banks, Hmm. but through equities and bonds. Mm -hmm. And you need to to have a proper default history with a lot of defaults in order to build a proper credit history model to figure out where risk should be priced at. Because I'll give you a very simple, it's a very, very simple rationale, right? If you don't know how much you can get back from a failed company, you're not going to know how much you're going to price, you know, the, the, the company's risk going forward, right? So now with the Kaiser case, with that, you know, Baudin Electrical Company's case, so finally we're figuring, starting to figure out, okay, you know, how much, maybe we'll get 40% recovery, so how, what does that translate to? So credit analysts, which was my former life, do, does, this is what we do, you know. So this is very, very important to have these kind of data. And it actually adds credibility into the credit rating agencies' uh, track, you know, forecasts and reports. Because right now, I think nobody believes their AAA rating, if you look at domestic rating uh, reports. All right. Steve, thank you so much for joining us this morning. That is Steve Wong, and he is the research director at the Reorient Group. Employers and employees should make prior work arrangements for typhoons and rainstorms. Rules on reporting to work, staggered release and returning to work should be covered. Employers should also be flexible to employees who have practical difficulties in resuming work. Make prior work arrangements for typhoons and rainstorms. Labor Department Hotline 2717-1771. The time is now 8.17 a.m. And uh, let's take a quick look at the numbers this morning. The Nikkei is down three-tenths of a percent to 20,131. Australia's ASX index is up a quarter of a percent to 5,834. And Seoul's Kospi is up three-tenths of a percent to 2,181. In uh, currencies, one euro is currently valued at 1.08 U.S. dollars. The U.S. dollar is trading at 119 yen and one pound sterling will buy you 11 Hong Kong dollars and 66 cents. Well, it uh, wasn't too long ago that a bunch of the big banks were fined uh, hundreds of million pounds over rates ringing, r- rigging. Excuse me. And uh, this week we've had more news of market manipulation scandals with a UK-based trader accused of causing the 2010 flash crash through spoofing. Uh, and then just yesterday we were told that Joyce, uh, Deutsche Bank has set aside 1.5 billion euros for litigation costs. Does that mean it will be the latest bank to be fined on rigging the LIBOR interest rates and how effective, frankly, will these fines be in keeping traders and bankers in check? Let's bring in our next guest, CFA Institute's President and CEO, Paul Smith. Good morning, Paul. 
Good morning, Renita. So, you know, lots in the news this week. I mean, you know, just given sort of uh, this UK trader who was blamed for the 2010 flash crash through spoofing, uh, you know, how realistic is it that one trader can sort of sit on his computer and do this? I think, unfortunately, it's it's extremely realistic and uh, obviously proven by um, by events. I mean, if you recall, we've had crashes with fat fingers before. Um, you know, the the robustness of the technology uh, in the marketplace is only as good as the people who are operating it. So, uh, if you have people who are either malignant in their um, in their activity or just incompetent, you're you're going to get these things. I, I don't think there's 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 too much to uh, to really say about it other than that. So compliance, compliance, compliance (laughs) in that case. Um, Paul, how do regulators reconcile the fact that regulations won't tamper with the market, given that brokers need to execute large or small orders, but at the still same time, you know, at the same time sort of still be effective? Well, I I think regulation does matter. I mean, if if you talk to anybody out there who's operating in the markets, whether in the sector that I look after, the investment management sector or the banking sector or the broking sector, um, they would say that cost of regulation has gone up a, by a minimum of four times, probably five times in the last seven or eight years in terms of the numbers of people in their organizations who are looking at uh, uh, looking over their shoulder, as it were. Uh, trying to get a new product organized in any financial services business is, is really, really difficult. Uh, so the regulators are having an impact. Um, they are... Um, changing the nature of the people at the top of organizations and I believe they're influencing the behavior all the way through organizations. So uh, not necessarily in all cases for the better. Obviously regulation regulation is a pendulum like any other and arguably it's swinging far too far uh, towards the over-regulated. Tobias, you had a question? Yeah, I have one question in general uh, because indeed we see a lot more regulation but in some opinions the root cause of these things is not solved. Effectively, Everything seems to have started when the big investment banks in the U.S. demutualized. Well, I, I agree with that, Tobias. I mean, I, unfortunately, I'm, I'm extremely old, so I go back. My career in financial services go back 35 years uh, prior to Big Bang in London and things of that nature. And I, I totally agree. I think the, the issue is the lack of segregation of function within not just the big banks, but, um, uh, but throughout the financial services world. We have a problem with intermediation. Clients have a problem identifying whether they're clients or whether they're mm. uh, looked at as trading, trading principles. Uh, I mean, the whole the whole whole of the structure of the industry really needs rethinking from a first principle. And the simple first principle is, are you putting your client's interests above your own? And uh, the reality is that as a client of a financial services business, you have no real idea uh, on um, where your counterpart stands in relation to that argument. Tobias? Yeah, I would fully agree. And then, of course, you get into the whole Muppet discussion. Yeah. Muppet discussion. <laughs> Which indeed is the case that some people were even officially clients but deemed as uh, counterparts or maybe something to be picked upon. Yeah, I, mean, I, I you know, I, I, I absolutely agree. I mean, I think, I think the, industry, uh, the industry needs to face up to the fact that it's going to have an, in, uh, an increasingly invasive regulator if it doesn't sort itself out. Mm. As, as one ages, unfortunately, one gets more cynical in life. And uh, my view is that I see very little 
evidence that the industry is going to be able to resolve its own problems and therefore the regulator is going to become uh, an increasingly important figure during this cycle uh, and inevitably uh, that will go too far uh, and uh, and then the pendulum will be pushed back the other way but um, but I think we're at least six or seven years away from that point so so the next six or seven years I think is inevitably going to be deeper regulation. Or, or could there be a situation that despite the regulator um you know, these bankers and traders can't be kept in check. Well, I, I, th- I think one of the things, and I think Tobias touched, touched upon it as well, is, is that there's an issue that, that it depends on who you hire as well. I mean, I think that's really one of the things that I'm looking for. I, I don't sense that financial services firms have really changed their hiring practices. And, um, you know, these businesses need to look more carefully at the type of people that they're bringing into the, to, to these companies. Uh, we have a huge gender imbalance, for instance, in the financial services world. Um, far too many young men, uh, not enough young women. Uh, the, 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 the young men that we do hire into the profession tend to be all from the same backgrounds, have the same sort of, uh, sort of approach to life. Uh, and, and financial services businesses need to, I think, be a little bit more thoughtful about the type of people they want working for them within this new regulatory construct uh, that we all have to operate in. Okay, Paul, thank you. So takeaway there, Tobias, is that we need the young women to keep the young men in check, (laughs) right? Uh, Thank you so much for joining us this morning, Paul. Um, That is Paul Smith. He is the president and CEO of the CFA Institute. Well, we've had a a listener request asking for advice on how to fill out the W-8 Ben form, which is a a form for non-U.S. residents, um, uh, required of all investor accounts here in Hong Kong. Uh, so let's welcome PWCHK's senior manager in risk assurance, Jenny Yip. Good morning. So Jenny, um, the W8 Ben form, before we start, you know, what exactly does that mean? What does it stand for? Okay, um, W8 Ben is, a, as you've mentioned, is a U.S. tax form that customer needs to fill in to declare that they are not a U.S. person and therefore not liable to U.S. tax. This form, yes. They need to fill this out because of the FATCA rules? Yes, this form is required because of the implementation of FATCA with full name Foreign Account Tax Compliance Act, which is a U.S. tax law to detect and deter tax evasion by U.S. person who try to hide their money overseas. So now there are two kinds of forms. There's one for individuals and one for entities. I'm holding them both in my hands. Mm-hmm. The one for individuals is, is one page, so it's <laughs> significantly more simple. The, this other one is, I think, seven pages long. Um, still, in looking at it, there are some uh, things which can be sort of Confusing. So if you could take us through what they are. I mean, you've, you've, the first part of the form goes through your, your basic information, your name, your permanent address, that kind of thing. Then uh, it, number five, uh, clause number five asks for an SSN or an ITIN. Can you explain what those are? Yep, you- sure. Um, so the US, so that's the U.S. tax identification number. But if you are not a U.S. person, then you don't really need this number. And instead, you need to fill in the number six, the foreign tax identifying number. So um, there are three forms that we need to be aware of when filling this W-8 form. So first, this is only for a non-U.S. person. So if you are a U.S. person and you have a U.S. TIN number, then you should fill in a W-9 form instead. 
Uh, is there anything else that we should be aware of? I mean, what are the reference numbers uh, listed, indicated on clause number seven? So, let me see. Right under that, you've got the U.S. Uh, taxpayer identification number. That's number five. Uh, or the number six would be the foreign tax identifying number. That's You've just mentioned that. And then number seven says reference numbers. Yeah, you can just leave that blank. Okay. We don't have any information to fill in. So, so it's not all the information here is mandatory. There are certain um, data fields that we need to fill in, but for certain that are not applicable, for example, part two, which is to declare the chapter three status, which is the current U.S. tax law status, and uh, you may leave it blank if it's not applicable to you. So part one is the most important section um, uh, in order to comply with FACA. Okay, so a lot of it we can leave blank. Okay, switching over to the more complicated form, the longer one uh, for entities. I mean, we don't have time, obviously, to go through each uh, line item in detail, but can you perhaps highlight one or two of the things that we uh, uh, locals here could find particularly confusing? Yes, um, the entity form, the W. Ban E form is to declare which type of entity you are. So instead of only declaring whether you are, you are a U.S. person, actually there are over 30 entity classifications that you need to choose from. For example, whether you are a financial institution, um, whether you are a non-profit organization that you can be exempted from, or whether you are carrying active business. So for certain type of entities, we need to look through to the ultimate beneficial owners to identify whether you are a U.S. person. And if you, if you are, you need to report accordingly. So uh, this form also asks for your TIN form, which uh, you should, uh, assuming I assume you should leave blank if you're not a U.S. person. But then it also asks for a GIIN. What is that? GIN number is the Global Information Identification Number. So... If you are a foreign financial institution and you are participating in uh, this FACA scheme, then you need to register at the IRS portal and they are giving you a unique identification number to prove that you are in compliance and then you need to fill in that number in the form. All right, Jenny, thank you so much. Of course, uh, that's, uh, there's a lot more uh, to fill out on the form, but uh, v- very useful, very helpful uh, that you've actually uh, uh, been able to highlight what some of this is. So thanks for joining us this morning. That is Jenny Yip, and she is PwC Hong Kong's Senior Manager in Risk Assurance. A quick look at the numbers now before we wrap up the show. The Nikkei is down three-tenths of a percent to 20,129. Australia's ASX index is up one percent to five thousand eight hundred and eighty four and Seoul's Cospi is up half a percent to two thousand one hundred and eighty four gold currently stands at one thousand one hundred and ninety four dollars per ounce and Brent crude oil at sixty four dollars and sixty four cents well Tobias here we are at the end of another week uh, what should we be thinking about before we head out into the weekend well I still despite the frothiness I would agree with mr Wang uh, China looks quite interesting but um Talk to Mr. Smith as well. If we have a bit more of a feminine touch in the financial services, maybe go China, but find some protection downside coverage somewhere. 
Love it. Absolutely love it. Okay, thanks for joining us this morning. That is Tobias Hexter, and he is an associate professor of finance at uh, the Chinese University of Hong Kong. I'm Renita Malhotra-Hora, wrapping up for this morning's edition of Money for Nothing, and a big thank you to Sandra Lam, our producer. A quick look at the weather forecast for today. It'll be cloudy with one or two light rain patches at first. The temperature right now is 22 degrees Celsius, and the relative humidity is 83%. Time for the news with Sam Butler. European Union leaders have agreed to triple the funding of their search and rescue operation in the Mediterranean to help deal with the large numbers of migrants trying to cross to Europe from North Africa. After emergency talks in Brussels, the leaders also approved measures to capture and destroy vessels likely to be used by human traffickers. Several EU states have offered ships, helicopters and manpower. The president of the European Council, Donald Tusk, said there should be more cooperation with the migrants' home countries. We need to limit irregular migration flows and to discourage people from putting their lives at risk. This means better cooperation with the countries of origin and transit, especially the countries around Libya. Finally, we will do more on refugee protection. The European Union will help frontline member states under pressure and coordinate the resettlement of more people to Europe on a voluntary basis. Police in Britain have charged a 14-year-old boy in connection with an alleged terror plot in the Australian city of Melbourne. The teenager was arrested on Saturday at his home in Blackburn in the northwest of England. Radio Australia's Barbara Miller reports from London. The teenager is thought to be the youngest person to be charged in the UK with terrorism offences. He's charged on two counts of inciting terrorism overseas. Prosecutors will allege that a 